You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here at Hill City Church, and I'm excited as we continue uh, our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. And today, I am not anticipating it being a controversial sermon. So you can praise the Lord for that. We, uh, the last two weeks were heavy, understandably. Just want to acknowledge that. And uh, today, I, I don't think there's a lot of uh, controversy or debate around the teaching we're going through today, but I never said it wouldn't be challenging. So we're going to start off with an ancient Greek legend. Maybe some of you are familiar with the term the Gordian Knot. In 333 BC, Alexander the Great was... Uh, conquering his empire, and he entered into uh, Phrygia and the capital city, Gordium. And in Gordium, there was this famous knot. I mean, picture, you know, just like this, the, the, the biggest rat's nest of a knot. The, the two ends, you couldn't see them. They were all tied and tucked within itself. And the founder of this city had tied a chariot to a post right in the middle of the town square. And there was uh, no one who could untie it. Many had tried. None have succeeded. And there was a prophecy. That was generations ago. And by the time of Alexander the Great uh, entering into this city, there was a prophecy that the one who could untie the knot would rule all of Asia Minor. And so Alexander uh, the Great walks up to this just mess of a knot. I mean, like, worse than the extension cords in your garage, okay? <laughs> or the necklace, you know, the tiny little chain link necklace. You ever had that? Yeah. And, uh, and he walks up to it and takes one look at it, and he pulls out his sword, and he slices it in two. And he goes on to rule Asia Minor. It's a legend, okay? It's a legend. And uh, that legend has major King Arthur... Sword in the Stone vibes. Does that sound familiar? But there's a striking difference between those two stories. In King Arthur, uh, and Excalibur is you know, trapped in this stone, and it's only one who is worthy, noble, pure in heart, is, is able to actually take it out. And uh, King Arthur is, is crowned the king because of his outstanding character. And in Alexander the Great's story, the story of the Gordian Knot, he cheats and he wins. And we celebrate that. I mean, if you think about the culture, the world that we live in, we kind of celebrate people who find that loophole in the system, and they exploit it. Uh, we entertain ourselves with movies, TV shows of con men and anti-heroes. We have a saying in our world, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Really? It seems like the person doing the fooling should be the one who gets shamed both times. Stop fooling people. <laughs> but just that, that cultural assumption that people are sketchy, manipulative, they're not truthful, and you can't trust anyone. Do you sense that? We live in a culture that celebrates loopholes, but as we'll see in our teaching text today, God doesn't. Go ahead and look on with me. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. 
But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil, or some translations say come from the evil one, Satan, the father of lies. So directly, uh, this teaching from Jesus is directly following his teaching about divorce, which should be no surprise. They go hand in hand. Essentially, divorce is breaking your marriage vows. And for us, in our modern culture, we don't necessarily swear oaths all the time. It's not a common practice. Uh, Other than a wedding ceremony where you make vows before God and these witnesses, you might swear if you are called as a witness in a courtroom. Do you solemnly swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth? And yet, outside of that, it's not really this common practice where uh, we're swearing oaths all the time. Uh, And yet, it was in the first century. It was very common for you to, when making uh, a promise to someone, to swear by one thing or the other. And Jesus' teaching is essentially tearing down this system of vows and oath-keeping. The Old Testament reference is not a direct quotation from the Old Testament, but it's a summary of a number of Old Testament teachings on swearing vows. Let's look at three of them. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. This is the Ten Commandments, once again. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we think about uh, honoring God's name. Certainly, this means that we don't use God's name in demeaning, in, in, in vulgar, in casual, overly casual ways. But primarily, what many Jews would have understood this as is not swearing in God's name and then not keeping your word when you swore in God's name. Look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. And then once again in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man breaks, uh, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so the common understanding for many Jews was that the worst kind of vow that you could break, the most binding vow that you could break, was if you swore in God's name, because that's like Ten Commandment worthy type stuff, right? And so primarily what they were concerned with is what's called profanity, profaning the the divine name, not necessarily perjury, which we would just call dishonesty, right? So if, if you think back to two weeks ago, Jesus teaches about murder, and really it centers around this biblical idea of the sanctity of life. Last week, we looked at uh, lust, uh, adultery, and divorce, and that centers around the sanctity of the marriage covenant. Well, today's teaching centers around the sanctity of truth. Truth is sacred, and it matters a ton to God. It's not just profaning the divine name, but it's actually not being true to your word that matters. And so what people would do is instead of swearing in God's name, they came up with this really complicated, convoluted uh, way that they could, they could make different kinds of vows 
and it would be more or less binding depending on what you swore on. And that's what Jesus is talking about in the four examples. So let me explain these four examples a little bit using this rope. So let's say that this rope represents your word and how binding or how tight or how loose your word is. And so let's say that you go to swear uh, to somebody, but you don't really mean it. And you kind of know that you know, it's more like if it works out. So you swear by your hair. You swear by your head, or you swear by the hair on your chin, 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 or whatever. And you, you swear this oath, but it's, it's got a pretty big loophole. And you're like, actually, I know I said I would help you move, but uh, the football game's on, you know? Pretty easy to get out of that. And then you're like, well, you know what? This is a pretty serious thing that I need to promise this person. So I'm not going to swear by uh, my own head. I'm actually going to swear by Jerusalem. I'm going to swear by the holy city. So you, you make a vow like that. And that's just like a little bit tighter. And then you know, it doesn't work out. And so you're not true to that word. And so then you say, OK, the next level is I'm going to swear not just by the holy city, Jerusalem. I'm going to swear by the whole earth. And you're tightening up once again. And then the example that Jesus gives is he gives the example of swearing not just by the earth, but by heaven. And so you make it even that more tight. But look, there's still a little tiny what? <laughs> little tiny loophole. And essentially, none of those uh, vows that you would be making invoke the divine name. Does that make sense? And so people had this kind of convoluted system of, I'm either going to swear by my head or by Jerusalem or the earth or maybe by heaven, but I know I'm not going to swear by Yahweh, by his name, because if I do that, that'll actually be binding, and all these other ones are not. And what Jesus does is he tears down the system. He's tearing down this this system that people had uh, created, and he ties everything back to God. He says, well, guess whose throne room heaven is? God's. Guess whose footstool the earth is? God's. Guess who's the great king of Jerusalem? God. Guess who created and numbered every hair on your head, right? So Jesus tying all of these, you know, these vows back to God says, listen, the important thing is not what you swear by. The important thing is that you tell the truth, might say it like this, there are no loopholes with God. There are no loopholes with God. If you think that you can twist and manipulate God in some way or another, or maybe even manipulate his people, you've got another thing coming. Jesus calls us to radical integrity to be radical, not just truth tellers, but people who live out the truth. And yet we live in a culture of compromise. I mean, it doesn't take long to look at transactions. It's something called a gentleman's handshake. So if someone shook your hand and gave you their word, you owned that horse or whatever you're selling. I don't know what they sold before World War II. But you, you make a deal, and it's binding, because they gave you their word, right? A, a person's word was worth more weight than gold. And yet today, we live in a day of sketchy Craigslist deals. I've heard so many stories of people who didn't get a bill of sale when they sold a vehicle. And later on, that vehicle never got registered under the new owner, and it showed up in like a bank robbery. And it's like, what? The cops are showing up at your house, so let's just be a warning to you, right? Get a bill of sale. Always get a receipt. 
We live in the day of internet scams. Did anyone get that email from me? Where I was like, hey, you might get an email from Reverend Pastor Josh. It's not me, right? Like, how, how, how ironic that even in the last week, there's someone impersonating me, and I'm talking about how people are sketchy and all this stuff. We live in the day of fake news articles that are uh, sometimes outright false or maybe just intentionally misleading by the title of the article. And we, people share them and, and retweet them without even thinking, and it spreads misinformation. Or I think about, uh, I think about the presidential debates a couple years ago, and these fact-checking organizations could not even keep up with hundreds of intentionally misleading or outright false lies. But as long as they win, that's what culture says. Blessed are the dishonest, for they get what they want. They win. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And if everyone else is kind of living this disreputable life, I mean, we're not going to be able to make it in this world unless we participate. But that's not what Jesus says. John Stott summarizes this idea of being a kind of person who feels the need to over-communicate your truthfulness. No, this time I really promise, right? We may not swear by Jerusalem anymore, but we, but we, we kind of get into that territory where we need to over-communicate, make sure that people know, this time I'm good on my word. John Stott says it like this, swearing, in essence, oath-taking, is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Woo! Somebody tweet that. A pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. And that's essentially what we're doing. If we need to reassure someone, no, 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 this time I really mean it. I promise. I swear to God, we say. We're doing the exact same thing. We're communicating that usually we're leaving a loophole in our word. But this time, I really mean it. And what Jesus is trying to communicate is don't be sketchy. Don't be dishonest. Don't be manipulative. Don't be someone who's always trying to to, to move the situation to your own advantage. Just be a person of integrity and honesty and truthfulness. And see, the danger for it, this is not a controversial, like, who could argue with that, right? This is not a controversial topic, but I think the challenge for today is we might all look at that and say, I think that's a good idea. Would that be a good society? If people were just, you could count on them to be true to their word. You didn't have to look over your shoulder or watch your back, right? Because people were just honest. Like that was just a cultural value. It's not a cultural value. No, one, no one's arguing that, but I think what, pe- what our gut reaction is, I know that's great for everyone else. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone else lived that out? But what's the harm for me in telling a little white lie? What's the harm for me in kind of bending the truth to my own advantage? So what? I overpromised and I undelivered again. It's just my kid's baseball game, right? It's just whatever. And we make excuses and we self-justify. Here's two reasons why this is a big deal. Reliability builds credibility for the gospel. This is something that we don't always realize, but people are are seeing the good works that you do, and they will either glorify our Father in heaven for living a life worthy of the manner in which we've been called, or we're actually destroying the foundation upon which the gospel stands. 
Our lives are, are, are actually corroding our witness. Sadly, time and time again, there's so, been so many surveys done of people outside the church on their perception of church people. Whether this is reality or not, this is the perception. People outside the church looking at church people. I say church people, not necessarily Christian. And time and time again, church people are known for one word that inevitably rises to the top. Other than judgmental, the other word that always rises to the top is hypocrite. And the definition of a hypocrite is literally actor. It's somebody who it comes from the ancient Greek you know, theater. But it's essentially someone who says one thing and they live another, AKA they don't let their yes be yes and their no be no. They live a life and there's some kind of dissonance between their actions and their words. And so no matter what that looks like in your life, if you're not a person who's consistent in a, in a culture of compromise, if you're not a person who's reliable or, or your character reflects your words, if someone can't trust that what you say is true, how are they gonna trust that the gospel is true? I mean, think about that. Maybe you do have an opportunity that presents itself and God leads you, and maybe you even communicate gospel truth in, in like perfect language, right, to that person. But they look at your life, and they're just like, yeah, but I don't know if, I, like that makes sense intellectually, but I just don't know if I can trust you. That's what we don't realize is happening when we're not people of integrity. I often say this line, good works open the door for the good news. The good works that we do opens the door for the good news of the gospel. And I just don't know if that many people outside the church look at our lives as followers of Christ and see anything of substance and see anything that's overtly different from the dominant culture of our day. This is why living out the kingdom ethics outlined in the Sermon on the Mount is such a massive deal. It's so incredibly important. It's also why things like doing an impact week and serving our neighborhood and serving the city to impact the world is such a massive deal that we're building credibility for the good news of the gospel. Another reason why this is significant, other than just like the sanctity and sacredness of truth, and God cares a lot about that, is that broken promises lead to broken relationships. And when we minimize or excuse lack of truthfulness, what happens is what we don't always realize is it's actually doing relational damage. And generally speaking, we're doing relational damage on the people who are closest to us, on your spouse, on your children, on your closest friends, because what we often think is those, those people, they don't mind that much, right? If I don't deliver on this project I'm doing at work, if I don't respond to that email, if I don't get this assignment done, like I'll get in trouble, essentially. My work performance, my annual review, my whatever. And the reality is we say yes to those things at the cost of the people who are closest to us. Who's counting on you? Just think about that. Visualize their face in your mind's eye. Who, who are the people in your life that are counting on you? If you have a family, it's your family. If you have Friends, it's your friends. It's your church family. It's your coworkers. If you own a business, it's your customers, right? Who are the people that are counting on you? And we need to stop excusing being people who break our word consistently with them because it's corroding the relationship. 
Michael Hyatt, in his book, Free to Focus, which is, to be fair, a, fo- a, a book on uh, uh, productivity, time management. It's one of my favorite books on those things. But it also, this principle also applies here in what we're talking about today. He says this, even if we hate saying no, for some people, no is like a four-letter word. It's like a curse word. Like Some people hate to say no. What we must understand is that every yes inherently contains a no. Some people... Uh, You just know this about yourself, that you're a people pleaser. You like people to like you. I'm not one of those people, which is a blessing and a curse as a pastor. Uh, And so I have a very easy time saying no. But for some people, you have a really difficult time. And I I just want to speak to you for just a moment. What you have to understand is when you continually overcommit and overfill your calendar, which is essentially what Michael Hyatt is talking about, saying yes to too many commitments, not really thinking about it. What you're doing is you're saying no to other things. Here's this principle explained. In a marriage, you vow to the other person. And those two words that are used in so many marriages, do you commit to this person? And we say, I do. When you say, I do, to one other person, what you're simultaneously saying is, I don't, to everyone else. Does that make sense? And we know that. I'm saying I do to you, and what I mean is I don't to you. I don't, like, you're not married to anyone else except that one person. And what we don't realize in these smaller ways is when we say yes to a commitment that maybe doesn't fit within our calendar or our schedule, when we say, when we say yes to these, maybe they're not even evil or, or sinful things, but we say yes to too many good things, maybe mediocre things, We're simultaneously saying no to the most important, I would say, people in our lives. And we need to stop excusing it away. They won't mind. It's just another time. And we need to start recognizing that broken promises lead to broken relationships. Save your best yes to the most important people in your life. Make, make those people and your commitment to the time with those people, to relational energy with those people, to how you spend your finances, to, to, to everything in, that you have in your power, in your resources, save your best yes to the most important people in your life. Don't give those people the leftovers. So here's some practices to help us live this out. The first practice is this. Be slow to speak so you can speak the truth. I think this would solve a majority of our problem in this area. Be slow to speak so you can speak the truth. James 1.19, we're supposed to be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to be angry. And this, that principle spans beyond that, uh, beyond our purposes today, but it's so helpful in the, in the realm of speaking the truth. How often did you not speak the truth because you just didn't stop to think about what you were saying? And you actually, you actually figured it out. No sooner did the words leave your mouth than you wish you could put them back. And you're on the, you're, maybe you're, you're, you've just walked away from a conversation and you're like, I, I already know that I can't keep that commitment. What if you just said, let me check my calendar. Let me check with my spouse. Let me think about that. Let me pray about that. Slow down a little bit so that when you speak, you can speak with integrity and truthfulness and honesty. Don't be like Jephthah. You remember Jephthah? Judges chapter 12, crazy story from the book of Judges, where Jephthah makes this hasty, foolish vow that the first living being that walks out of his household to greet him after battle, he will sacrifice, he will kill that. 
And who greets him when he gets home? His daughter. And he kills his daughter at the end of the story. And the more, I've got a sermon on this, by the way. And the moral of the story is not, good for you, Jephthah, you kept your word. The moral of the story is you should have never made that vow to begin with. Too hasty, too foolish. It would have been better for him to break his word than to kill his own daughter in that situation. And that's how corrupt he is and influenced by the culture of his day that he doesn't even see that. He's blind to God's ethics. And a good rule of thumb to use when it, when it comes to being slow to speak and speaking the truth is the bigger the commitment, the more discernment it will take. So if somebody after church today is like, hey, you want to go grab lunch? You don't have to be like, let me pray on that for a week. <laughs> Sometimes we do this as Christians a little bit, by the way. Let me pray on that. And you really just want to say no or you're too busy. Just say no. Let your no be no in those situations. Uh, you obviously can just say yes or no in those kind of things. But before you commit to, I don't know, dating someone, certainly getting married, taking a new job, moving, but before you make substantial decisions in your life, the bigger the commitment, the longer discernment period. I actually, believe it or not, I went to a monastery for a few days before I asked now my wife, Shana, to marry me, to pray and fast and think of, you don't have to do that before you date. I'm just saying, young people, a little bit more time, a little bit more prayer, a little bit more discernment, that will allow you to keep those kinds of important commitments and be people of your word. And then inevitably, there's going to be moments where you have every intention. I don't think this this passage is a, is a matter of necessarily manipulative intentions or maniacal intentions. I think ultimately for most of us, the problem is we just, we just aren't cautious with what we commit to and what we say, and we're not really thinking or, or discerning those things. And so inevitably, you're going to have every intention when you give your word on something, and it's just going to fall through. It's going to be outside of your uh, control. It's like, ah, oh, no, I really can't. I wish I could have been RSVP'd and you canceled or whatever, right? What are you going to do in those situations? Here's a practice for you. Apologize and adjust when you break your word. I mean, ideally, you would let your yes be yes, your no be no, and you would like always follow through. But in, the, in reality, it just doesn't work that way. And in those moments, just apologize and adjust. When you apologize, you're saying, I'm sorry. And essentially what you're saying is you're owning the damage caused by telling a lie. And we need to own that, even if it's to your two-year-old child. And they probably forgot about that you told them they would have a treat when you got home and you never did and whatever, right? Apologize and own it. Acknowledge that every time we tell a lie, there's relational damage because otherwise, what's going to happen is we're going to be in the habit of telling falsehoods. And there's going to be this double-tongued, double-souled, talking out of both sides of our mouth that we just think is totally normal. Relational damage caused by broken promises. And then the second thing, we're not just going to apologize, we're also going to adjust. What this means is if you find yourself always apologizing, you're a serial sorry-sayer. Say that five times really fast. <laughs> you're, you're always apologizing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You're always sending text messages. I'm late, I'm this, I'm that. Maybe it's time to stop saying sorry and start making adjustments. Change your behavior. You're overcommitted. Cut things out of your life. 
Put better boundaries in place so you can be home on time. Don't reply to that email. Whatever you need to do, stop making excuses and start making adjustments. Make adjustments. It's, it's, it's your patterns of behavior, not your heart, not your intentions, that are the problem. And so identify what went wrong. Why can I, why can I never keep my word and, and cut out things in your life so that you can actually have the bandwidth to do so? Here's the main point for today. Jesus is not trying to get us to be non-committal people. This is what he's trying to get us to do, to say yes to God and no to sin. Say yes to God and no to sin. Uh, a way that you could live out this principle is you just never say yes to anything. <laughs> and so you never have to do anything, right? And uh, that's not the point. The point of, that's, that's a misunderstanding of the text. What Jesus is trying to get us to do is not to be non-committal, but to commit to the right things and to say no to the wrong things, specifically to say yes to God and no to sin. And when we think about Jesus and his character and what it means to be like Christ, what we have to recognize is that God is always true to his word. God always keeps his promises. And I think about Jesus who taught us this, some of the bold promises that he makes. And, and just think about these promises. He promised that he came to seek and to save the lost. He promised that we would have life and have it to the full. He promised that the reason he taught us these things so that we might have joy and have it abundantly. He promised to have the ability and the power to forgive our sins. He promises, God's word promises that every tear will be wiped away, that all things will be made new. Jesus, this is from the mouth of Jesus. He promised that if you believe in him, even if you die physically, you will have eternal life. That's a massive promise. And he is always true to his word. He is always true to his word. He didn't just talk the talk, as we say. He walked the walk. And the walk that he walked led him to Golgotha, where he was nailed to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And three days later, we can be sure that he is true to his word. He substantiated all of his promises and his, the future promises that were still awaiting to be fulfilled by rising, defeating death once and for all, and rising from the grave on the third day. That is someone that you can trust, that you can bank on, that you can rely on to be true to his word. And so the best yes that we can say in our lives is saying yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if you're here and you've never received the gospel, you've never responded to the gospel, what Jesus is looking for is he's not just looking for a verbal yes. He's not just looking for people to say, Lord, Lord. He's looking for us to live it to receive him as Lord and Savior. And, and I love this ceremony of baptism that Jesus gave to us because we know when there's big commitments, we don't just need a lot of discernment, but there needs to be some kind of like enacting moment. There's this, this kind of initiation for a marriage. You have a wedding ceremony. And for Jesus, he understands that our relationship to him, to Christ, is not this casual, it, it's it, Equally more important, right, than even a marriage covenant, he gives us baptism as a ceremony. Do you want to know what baptism is? It's saying yes to Jesus. It's saying yes to Jesus, saying yes to who he is. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. 
It's saying yes to what he did. He died on the cross for your sins and he rose again. And it's saying yes in commitment, committing to follow Jesus with everything. Those are the three questions. When we baptize someone, we don't say, do you swear, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth? We ask those three questions and three times the person says yes, yes, yes. And then they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Have you said yes to Jesus? Have you said yes to Jesus through baptism? And I would encourage you, you can go to hillcityboise.org slash baptism. I wanna invite you to say yes to Jesus in that way. And maybe you have, and maybe you know that you're in the family of God. You, you can bank on the fact that all those promises are true. Your, your sins are forgiven. You stand in the grace that God has for you. But I wanna, I wanna ask you this. Are you saying yes to Jesus in every area of your life? Paul in Romans 6 says it like this. Do not present your members, that's your, the members of your body, your, your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And the picture that Paul gives in Romans chapter 6 is a picture of slavery, that at one point in time, all of us were slaves to sin and death. And for us, we might just you know, modernize that illustration for a moment and say, imagine that you work at a terrible job and you have a horrible boss. Some of you are like, I don't have to imagine that, right? But imagine that for a moment. The worst, like, they, don't pay, they don't even pay you well, verbally abusive, toxic work environment, nobody likes working there, and you're always talking about it with the other employees. That's, okay, slavery to sin is like you have this horrible job. And then you, you walk in one day by the power of the gospel and you say, I quit. I am done here. I don't work for you. I work for a new boss. I work for Jesus now. And then the next day, they're short-staffed at your old job and you get that desperate text from your old boss. Hey, real quick, could you just come in today just for a few hours? And some of us in our lives, we say, sure. And we allow the old person, the old self, to actually rule in our, in, our, in our present lives. And what Jesus is calling us to do when we say yes and no is by the power of the gospel, every single day of your life, you can still say no to sin. You can still say no because you have the, the Holy Spirit of God living within you, the power that raised Jesus from the grave. You have the power to say no to sin and temptation. And maybe for you, I just want to ask you this question. What do you need to say no to? You're like, I know I'm saved. I know I'm a follower of Jesus, and that's great. But is there some area in your life where you're still saying, maybe not yes to sin, you're saying sure. Sure. And you need to stop making excuses and start making adjustments and get serious about fighting sin and death. You don't work for that anymore. Say no to those things. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is gonna teach us this principle. You can't, you can't actually serve two masters. You can't work for two bosses. And if we're saying yes to sin, inherently we're saying no to Jesus. So by the power of the gospel, what are those things you need to say no to? And then I want to ask you the positive side of that question is, what do you need to say yes to? Jesus has a beautiful life that he has called you into, a beautiful purpose. 
He's gifted you in certain ways. You realize there are good works which Christ Jesus prepared in advance that you would walk in them. I believe every single day God has good things to do for his kingdom, to further his kingdom, to move the ball down the field. Maybe there's even those spiritual practices or those things that are gonna help you grow deeper in your discipleship to Christ. Spending time in the word, spending time in prayer, even in a busy summertime, still making it a priority to be, the, be part of the church community. And I don't think it's because we have these ill intentions. I think it's just because we love vacations. We love recreation. And it's, maybe we're busy at work, but maybe we're making ourselves busy at home. And so what we don't realize is all of those, again, maybe not even sinful things, we're saying yes, we're overcommitting in all these other areas. We're inherently saying no to the, the beautiful life that God is calling us to. Not because those things, not because God doesn't have this like heavenly attendance chart with gold stars. It's not because those things save you or even make you more righteous than the next person, but they help you connect with God. They help you grow spiritually and they help you become the kind of person that Jesus is calling us to be. So what are the things you need to start saying yes to? that God is calling you into to reprioritize and make a bigger deal in your life. Present yourself, as Paul says, holy to God, as, 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 as instruments of righteousness for his kingdom, not as instruments of unrighteousness for sin. And when you do that, you're gonna find purpose and passion in the good life that Jesus has called you into. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.